Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. If it's okay with you, I was going to ask a uh, question of you about uh, residents taking advantage of possibly additional time off during uh, residency um, during this COVID crisis. We were wondering if you had any particular advice for us, um, you know, things we should be doing either now or during our career um, to try and, you know, further and better ourselves, particularly when our normal surgical schedules might be interrupted during this time. Yeah, so, you know, a little bit about myself, Mike Borofsky, I'm um, in Minneapolis, but I trained at NYU. And uh, so as far as, you know, what to do during this time, so I think this is really a unique time in everybody's life, obviously, but, you know, I would say that this is a great opportunity to do exactly what you're doing and really, really bulk up on your didactics and your reading and your you know, your fundamentals of urology, which I think, you know, probably go overlooked for the most part. And I think as residents, a lot of us historically have done a lot of learning on the fly, which is also incredibly useful. But I, I know that I didn't read enough during residency. And I'm sure most people feel like they don't learn or actually read enough during residency. But you guys are all going to have an incredible opportunity to take this time to master, you know, the fundamentals, the didactics, the, the foundation of urology. And I would hope that, you know, in everyone's situation, when they come back to a normal service, hopefully our field has, you know, the smartest residents that we've ever had before, because um, I think this opportunity to really learn is going to be unparalleled and, and could, you know, actually be a little bit of a silver lining. I don't think anyone ever expected to have like a one or two month pause in the middle of their training, you know, to, uh, to focus on other things, or at least, at least have some more didactic opportunities. But I would say that's the best way to continue your learning for the time being. Absolutely. We appreciate that. And um, what, if you don't mind me asking, what's it like in uh, Minnesota right now in terms of uh, how this is going? So it's a lot different here. Um, You know, I, I feel fortunate right now because we really haven't ever had much of a much of a surge and I, people don't know if we're ever going to have one or if it's just you know um if we're just preceding the surge but I would say on average it's about 100 to 150 new uh patients with covid every day um it's and that's it's been that way for a couple of weeks and you know we we seem to be pretty flat right now I was, it's definitely taken a toll on our hospitals and we've shut down elective surgery and we haven't really been doing our normal things, anticipating that, you know, we could be heading into a surge, but um, there's more and more evidence to suggest that this is not going to be the same type of uh, situation that you guys have all dealt with, which, you know, it's been really amazing to see what you guys have all been doing on the news and from talking to people and connections in New York, I just really been impressed with the response that all of you guys are putting forth. Thank you. Um, thanks for sharing that. So for everybody here, we have uh, Dr. Michael Borofsky. Um, he'll be presenting on 
Holep, uh, Dr. Borowski is an assistant professor of urology at the uh, University of Minnesota, and we're lucky and very happy to have him here. So thanks, Dr. Borowski. All right, so with that being said, so I'm gonna talk about Holep. Uh, really thank you all for uh, your attention and thanks for inviting me to share a little bit of my interests. Um, let me just get my slides going. Here's my disclosures. So I thought I'd share this because, you know, as I had mentioned, I, I trained at NYU in the last talk I gave as a, uh, outgoing NYU chief was at the New York Chiefs resident, chief resident debate, where I was actually arguing in favor of green light. So I would say things have changed quite a bit um, in the last couple of years. After residency, I went to Indianapolis and I did a two-year endourology fellowship where I learned HOLEP. And I think HOLEP's really interesting. Here's what I'd say. This is not going to be a guidelines talk. Um, if you want kind of my perspective on the AUA guidelines, I did a similar lecture as part of the urology, the UCSF urology COVID series, which is online and available through that website. Um, that's from two weeks ago. Um, but I think HOLEP really merits its own talk. And I'm going to show you, everything I'm going to show you is going to be data-based, but bear in mind that I am very biased towards HOLEP. And I think there, I'm only really going to present the HOLEP side of things today. Um, so there are some other, you know, good considerations to be made supporting some of the other treatments. But I think HOLEP's a really great operation that's underutilized and people don't have a lot of familiarity with it in certain places. So I really want to just share my interest and my experience. Um, Please, I hope that I get some good questions at the end. So HOLEP is not a new surgery. It's actually been around a long time. Um, this is the first you know, real RCT comparing HOLEP and TERP. And this was from New Zealand from Dr. Gilling and his colleagues. And this was 20 years ago. Um, in this study, they took um, 120 patients um, with prostates less than 100 grams and they randomized them. And they found that HOLEP and TERP patients did you know, basically each did well. There was equivalent functional outcomes as far as IPSS, quality of life, PVR, Qmax, and neurodynamics. TERP was a little faster, although bear in mind this was a new procedure at the time. But HOLEP was generally favorable for the catheter duration, the hospital stay, and for bleeding and other related complications. So, you know, this was 20 years ago, and I would argue not a lot has really moved the needle um, in this area, despite a lot of good data to suggest this is a superior operation. Um, if you don't believe me that HOLEP's underutilized, here, take a look at this map. So this was published in the Journal of Endourology this past year, and it looked at these hospital referral regions, which is essentially a way to slice up the country into different, um, different regions. And it, you can see here that only um, about 30% of these hospital referral regions in the United States offered 10 or more HOLEPs in a given year. And if you look at New York in particular, I mean, there's a big gap here as far as where people are performing HOLEP. And that's kind of similar to a lot of the other areas of the country. But I would say, you know, in my residency and in my experience, often in the East Coast, there's been, I think, a little bit of a more interest in, in some other BPH treatments. And so I didn't learn a lot about HOLEP. And um, I would just hope to share a little bit of my um, insight with you. Um, further data suggesting that HOLEP is underutilized. Here's published data from the Journal of Endourology using NISQIP data from 2011 to 2015. And you can see here that on average in this database, and this is not a complete database, but it's 600 hospitals, um, the vast majority of patients are getting TERPs. This is about still 
50% or more of the BPH surgery that we do. But you can actually see there are more patients in a given year getting repeat TERPs for regrowth of adenoma than primary holup, which is associated with a very, very, very low likelihood of needing a reoperation, which I'll get into um, in, in the couple slides to come. So I think one of the reasons holup gets lost is because there are a lot of different treatment options for BPH. And it seems like this slide has to be updated almost every year because there's more and more and more new therapies on the market. Um, I like to break them down into channel procedures and enucleation procedures. And most of what we do is really considered a channel procedure. So you're basically going in through the prostatic urethra and you're either peeling or moving or burning or ablating some of the tissue, but you're really not coming down to the capsule. And when are you done with the TERP? When are you done with a green light? It's hard to know for sure because it's usually a subjective surgical endpoint. And that's one of the reasons that these procedures, these channel procedures are of limited utility in a very large prostate because it's hard to really remove enough of the tissue to open up that channel sufficiently. The nucleation procedures, on the other hand, this is really um, a full removal of the transition zone adenoma. And it's like peeling the orange out of its peel. And enucleation itself can be done with a variety of energies. I like holmium laser energy, and that's what I would say is the most common way to do an enucleation. But um, you can do this with a bipolar electrode. You can do this with a thulium laser, a green, green light laser. I'm just going to be talking about holup for the purpose of this. But know that there are some other ways of doing enucleation procedures transurethrally. And unlike having a subjective surgical endpoint, like you do with some of the channel procedures, this is a very objective endpoint. You can very much see this capsular plane when you're doing the dissection, and it makes you very reassured at the end of the procedure that you've gotten all of the adenoma out. It's also suitable for prostates really of any size. Why do I like holmium laser? Well, holmium lasers are ubiquitous. I would argue that each of you probably has access to a holmium laser in your OR already. They're versatile. You know, they're good for tissue ablation if you need to ablate some tissue. You can make an incision in the prostate. You don't have to burn the entire thing and you can just make a bladder neck incision or dissect out a median lobe. And you can also do simultaneous stone uh, treatment without switching instruments or energies. So, you know, this is a bladder stone. Oftentimes in about 10% of cases we'll go in when we start a hole up, we'll find a bladder stone and we'll uh, treat the bladder stone and then move on to the prostate and we don't have to switch anything. I like holmium lasers because they're pulsed lasers also. And so as a holmium laser is moving, it actually creates these little, these little pulses, which can be very helpful in um, doing your tissue dissection. And an example of that is here. Here's a little part of a hole-up video where you can see the laser and, and just activating the laser is actually kind of creating this pulsed dissection by, by finding this capsular plane and then pushing some of the adenoma away from the capsule. So it's a very nice laser. It works very well. It's hemostatic. Um, there's a lot of advantages to it. So how do we choose the right patient for a holup? Well, if you look at the AUA guidelines, here's a little, um, a little map of you know, how they recommend um, guidance for choosing the right treatment for BPH. And you can see that holup makes its way into the recommendations for a small prostate, for an average size prostate and for a large prostate, and it's called out as being a size independent option. Really, holup and thulip, both laser enucleations, are suitable for all prostate sizes. Furthermore, and they have this little sidebar about medically complicated patients, those who are at higher risk of bleeding um, or on anticoagulation, 
and hole up again makes its way in, into there. So it's a very versatile approach. And what's really nice and reassuring about that is if you get to the OR and something isn't exactly as you expected it to be, maybe the prostate's bigger, maybe it's smaller, maybe it's more, more oozy or bloody, hole up's still gonna be a good choice regardless of what you encounter. We know it's efficacious for extremely large glands. This is data from Indiana University looking at 57 patients with massive BPH, prostates greater than 175 grams. And if you look here, their volumes went from a baseline of 218 grams to just 31 grams at six months on truss. PSA reductions went from 15 at baseline to less than one. AOA symptom score improvement, 19 to six. Qmax, eight to 18.5. So really favorable outcomes in these big, big, big prostates. And I think holops have this general sense that it's only for large prostates, but that's really not true. Holop is a very good surgery for small glands too. This is data that we presented at the AUA a couple of years ago, looking at various um, IPSS improvements among prostates of different size, um, prostates of different size. And you can see that regardless of um, where you were as far as your, your baseline size, there is a very good improvement in your IPSS scores um, at each level. So even the smaller end of, of the um, prostate sizes had a really good improvement in their um, IPSS after holop. Some of the unique advantages to HOLIP is very definitive. So by removal of that, the entirety of the uh, transition zone adenoma, you're really just left with the peripheral zone. And the peripheral zone really makes um, a pretty stable amount of P PSA. And you can see this um, in a comparison of two studies or two experiences. One's from Montreal, um, where they had 30, 323 patients that they were re reviewing outcomes among. And in comparison to a totally separate group of patients in Indianapolis with 186 patients, you can see that um, there was differences in the enucleated weight. So they were treating different sized prostates. But regardless of that, the post-op PSA was almost the same. And, and this is what we commonly see in our uh, hole-up follow-ups is the PSA almost always drops to one afterwards. And that's really indicative of the complete removal of the adenoma. So it's a very nice thing. And there's a, a couple of papers that have come out recently that have suggested that because you can reliably predict that the PSA is gonna drop to one after holop, if it doesn't, and there was no funniness uh, about the surgery, those patients are at an increased risk potentially of having um, uh, peripheral zone prostate tumors because you wouldn't expect the PSA to be three, four, five after um, a holop. Holop's a great choice for men in urinary retention. If you look at the published outcomes among uh, patients who are undergoing holop in retention, it's a nearly 100% catheter free rate. Um, so very definitive in that regard. And there's even some data to suggest that in the presence of obstruction and an underactive, a hypocontractile, or even an atonic bladder, that um, a good number of men are gonna void after um, enucleation. And this is data from Dr. Crambeck when she was at the Mayo Clinic in 2014, where they actually took 19 men um, in urinary retention and had urodynamically confirmed atonic bladders. And they followed them for a couple of years and found that the vast majority, 95% of men, were able to void spontaneously after enucleation. And interestingly, a majority of them had some return of detrusor function on urodynamics as well. So this is a very nice, um, surgery for even the worst of bladders and the worst of situations. 
Other benefits of maximal unobstruction, so by debulking and really removing all of this obstructing adenoma, it's associated with a very low likelihood of needing a repeat BPH treatment. And in some of the published um, series with long-term follow-up, um, the whole-up re-intervention rate for BPH, this is not taking into account like a urethral stricture or a bladder neck contracture, just for regrowth of tissue, is about 1% at 10 years. Um, we know from other studies like TERP, um, has a retreatment rate, you know, approaching eight to ten percent um, at eight to ten years out. So over the long run, the benefits of a whole are probably going to be, be realized um, to an even greater degree. Whole up versus alternative BPH surgery. So here's just a little scale. These are not um, comparison studies, but you know we have these missed therapies, these minimally invasive surgical treatments. And I think it's just, I, I'm really putting this on there because I want people to have this idea that when they're working someone up or counseling them, you really have to give people a different um, frame of reference for what they can expect as far as their avoiding functional outcomes. So missed therapies are kind of all the rage right now. This is resume or, or water vapor ablation. This is a prostatic urethral lift. And if you look at these um, treatments and the results associated with them, yes, um, the ability to preserve ejaculation is present and is going to be more likely um, than in a hole-up, which I never tell people, I always say to people that if you're gonna undergo a hole-up, you're gonna probably have retrograde ejaculation. But if you look at the functional voiding parameters in these surgeries, so resume, at four years follow-up, patients are reporting an IPSS score around 11, their quality of life's around two, Qmax, 13.7, and there is a retreatment rate. It's about 5% at four years. Eurolift, similarly, IPSS scores of 14.5, quality of life 2.5, Qmax 11, adenoma retreatment, so about 14%. So definitely a good chance that someone's, that this is going to fail with enough time. And then look at whole So this is 10-year tenure data from uh, McGill University. And I just show you this more to look at the frame of reference. IPSS scores are way lower, quality of life way better, QMAX way higher, and adenoma retreatment way lower at 10 years. So, I mean, you, when you're counseling people, you have to give them a little bit of a, you know, set the bar or set their expectations um, that when they're going to undergo a tissue removing and particularly in a nucleation procedure, very likely that their functional um, improvement is going to be greater. Holup has been compared to TERP a number of times. There, this was um, a meta-analysis that was published in the Gold Journal, Journal this past year, and you can actually see there have been 11 RCTs comparing Holup and TERP. Um, so very well studied. What we know is that um, Holup is associated with a quicker hospital recovery, um, and that's hospital stay, catheterization time, duration of CBI, that's are all the same um, reported outcomes from that first study 20 years ago. There's less bleeding um, defined as blood transfusions in, in HOLUPs versus TERP. Interestingly, HOLUP is associated with an improvement in IPSS relative to TERP at 12 months, but quality of life and kind of 24 month IPSS was similar in the TERP and HOLUP group. But everything else favored HOLUP. QMAX at one and two years, PDR at six months and 12 months in favor of HOLUP again, probably because you're removing more tissue. And some of the limitations to consider when you're looking at these HOLUP versus TERP RCTs is that these don't include large prostates. So these are all prostates less than 100 grams. 
And even long-term follow-up in these studies is two years, but we know that the potential for retreatment and symptom recurrence and starting medications really lasts way longer than two years, which is where you would expect to potentially see the greatest difference in outcome. Um, and then this is missing, these studies typically don't get follow-up PSAs, they don't get follow-up trust volumes, and they don't capture any of the patients who are on anticoagulation or any related events um, uh, to resuming blood thinners like aspirin or anything, which is again another area where HOLAP has some of its most uh, prominent advantages. HOLAP versus green light. So there has been one uh, prospective randomized trial comparing the two of these procedures. Um, this included 80 patients with prostates greater than 60 grams. And you can see that both did a pretty good job uh, as far as improving patients' IPSS. So IPSS at one year was very good in both groups. No, no statistically significant difference. QMAX favored HOLAP. PVR favored HOLAP. Percent reduction PSA and percent reduction trust volume favored HOLAP as well. But most importantly, one of the things to consider in this trial was that among the PVP cohort, 22% um, required an intraoperative conversion to a TERP or HOLAP. And there were 5% of patients in the PVP um, at just a year who required re-intervention for BPH. So again, um, HOLAP comes out the champion over there. When you look at HOLAP versus PVP in a more long-term fashion, so this is retrospective, a retrospective series um, with five years of follow-up, you can see that, yes, there was a similar improvement in some of the storage symptoms between uh, patients, but HOLAP pretty much beat out PVP in every other um, outcome. So as far as IPSS reduction, you can see here the magnitude of IPSS reduction was greater in the HOLAP patients than in the uh, PVP PVP patients. Quality of life improvement was improved at you know, long-term as well as short-term outcomes for the uh, HOLAP versus PVP. Higher QMAX, greater decreases in PSA. And then one of the trials I consider to be really foundational and very important is HOLAP versus open simple prostatectomy. And there have been a number of RCTs comparing the two, but this one I, I really like because I think it was well done and demonstrates um, some of the principles well. So this was an RCT from Germany comparing 120 men with prostates greater than 100 grams. And what you can see here is that um, HOLAP was favorable for bleeding um, with a transfusion rate of 0% versus 13% in the open simple group. Uh, HOLAP had a lesser duration of catheterization, so only about 30 hours compared to um, 190 hours in the open simple group. And then hospital stay was much shorter in the HOLAP group. And I would consider this, you know, nearly three-day hospital stay very long nowadays. I would, most of our HOLAP patients are really just overnight. Oftentimes they go home the same day even. So um, the difference here was already profound, but I would say even better now. Um, the same group looked at their outcomes five years later. And what you can see here is there was equivalent improvement in AUA symptom score at one year. But look at what happens at five years. So you can see that the, the outcomes you get from a whole or an open simple are very durable. So men reported essentially the same degree of bother as far as their AUA symptom score at five years as they did one year. And again, no difference. Peak flows were preserved um, at one year and five years. And PVRs were very low in both groups as well.
Holip has also been compared to robotic ass assisted simple prostatectomy. So um, there have been a couple of studies looking, comparing the two, because I would say robotic assisted simple prostatectomy is now becoming one of the more preferred treatment approaches for men with um, very large prostates. Um, and if you look here, um, this one study by Umari and colleagues looked at 81 patients going undergoing robotic simple versus 45 undergoing uh, HOLIP. They showed similar functional improvements, similar operative time, blood loss, and complications, but HOLIP was favored for catheter dur duration and hospital time. And then a study that I was involved in out of um, Indiana comparing uh, 32 patients at various sites undergoing robotic simple to 600 patients in a prospective database at, at Indiana showed there was um, a similar complication rate between the two, but HOLUP was favored for OR time, for bleeding, for transfusion, catheter duration, and hospital time as well. So um, perioperatively, um, very favorable outcomes. But the thing that really limits HOLUP adoption, and, and I think probably the biggest thing that we're all aware of as far as why more people don't offer the surgery is the learning curve. So in that initial study from Dr. Gilling, published 20 years ago, they put in there, there's a potential drawback of the procedure and that is, is dissection involving the surgical planes of the prostate and thus has a learning curve and requires skill in endoscopic techniques. And I would say this still holds true now. Holop is a very different operation than a TERP. It's a very different operation than most of the things we do. Um, and as a result, it has its own unique learning curve that is challenging to overcome. And it's probably the main reason that the surgery is not um, more commonly offered. So what are those barriers? Well, HOLIP really is a unique skill. Um, it's hard to kind of dabble in this surgery because once you kind of start your planes and once you start your dissection, you can very much get lost in a prostate. So unlike a TUR or a PVP where you may be, you may encounter some, some difficulties and you can always just put in a catheter and stop. It's kind of challenging to do that in a holop because you're kind of halfway through a dissection, you can get lost in some of the planes, but you can still end up with, you know, a half dissected prostate that, that is still stuck in the fossa. So it makes it a little bit more challenging um, to commit to doing the surgery if you can get into trouble that you have a hard time getting out of. There's also limited exposure in a lot of our training programs. So as you could see from that map I presented earlier, holop is not offered, you know, widely across the country. So it is often hard to get help uh, learning it if you don't have anyone at your local institution or in your neighborhood who uh, offers it already. And it's also not always intuitive. So unlike, you know, a transurethral procedure where one of those channel procedures where you're kind of working in the tunnel and working your way out, you have to really think in three dimensions when you're doing a hole up. So you kind of go in and you have to make a cut and then, and then find your way into this plane that you then work around. And that's not always easy to do. You have to really think in three dimensions. And it's hard because we don't often think of the prostate in three dimensions um, when we're operating on it. This is uh, one approach that's been shown and uh, been demonstrated to help lower the learning curve. And this is something we do you know, in our residency program. And this is just a hand grab te technique where you can actually, as a mentor, put your hand on somebody, um, somebody else's hand who's, who's working their way through the procedure because this is a very tactile operation and you, you, it requires a little bit of blunt dissection as you're going through the prostate. So having somebody actually take you through and put your hand on it to help you know, figure out the movements, the pressures, the, the um, planes can be very helpful. 
But again, one of the areas where you kind of need a mentor in, in order to do that. So not everyone's going to have access to this. And I think this is one of the reasons this ha has not been more widely adopted. But if you look at the learning curve, um, there's actually been a number of studies um, which have studied how many cases does it take to master a whole life. So in a meta-analysis um, from the Gold Journal last year, um, they looked at 20 studies that they identified talking about the learning curve. And they identified the learning curve as somewhere around 20 to 60 cases. In two studies, they, they suggested that um, the learning curve could be overcome in less than 20 cases. But really, the authors made the recommendations that if you're going to learn HOLIP and you're doing this unsupervised, you probably need about 50 cases under your belt. And if you have this mentorship model, about 25 cases, more or less, is, um, is what's necessary to kind of overcome the learning curve. And so while that may seem high um, for a transurethral surgery, if you consider the benefits of HOLOP and you consider you know, some of the advantages to learning it, I, I would argue it's really on par with some of the other things that we train um, people in during their residencies and fellowships. I mean, if you, and we know that every surgery has a learning curve associated with it and you can continue to improve far beyond you know the initial part of the, of the learning curve and we know this from other things like um like a robotic assisted lap prostatectomy where outcomes are known to improve with experience and surgical margins as um you know one threshold gets better with time and you can see here in a published study this past year positive margins in the first 10 cases about 17 percent but after 250 cases, about 10%. So we're always continuously improving our surgical techniques. And there's no different than HOLA, but I would argue that it does take a little bit of a different, um, a, a change in kind of your frame of reference for BPH surgery. This definitely has a higher learning curve, but it's worth it. So how do you overcome the learning curve? Well, outside of the OR, I would say you have to make a dedicated effort to learn HOLA. It's not something, again, that you can really just dabble in. Um, very helpful nowadays to review educational and surgical videos. There's a number of HOLUP surgeons who post just live or um, pre-recorded uh, videos online, which I think are an excellent resource if you're, if you're interested in learning. Um, there are courses, or at least there have been, and I'm sure there will be courses again, um, that you can attend in person to learn HOLUP and talk to some of the experts. Um, you can also contact someone you know, locally. If you have someone in your region who offers HOLUP, I, I would say, give them a call or reach out if you're interested and spend some time with them in the OR, watch some cases live. There's really, this is a great way to, uh, to take those initial steps into learning the procedure. And then during the surgery, so, you know, as you're doing a whole, don't start with a 500 gram prostate and also don't start with a 30 gram prostate. 60 to 80 grams is really the sweet spot. That's where, that's a prostate that's gonna be more likely to have really nice planes. Um, or just start with just doing a middle lobe. Find a patient with a really juicy median lobe and just start by using the laser to dissect um, that median lobe by making kind of these parallel incisions down to the bladder neck. I think it's reasonable to set limits. So give yourself about 30 minutes, you know, don't commit to doing the entire surgery and, and say, okay, you know, struggle for 30 minutes, try to, try to find the planes, try to get some of the surgery done, but be very, very, very um, ready to just switch to your um, transurethral procedure of choice, you know, whether it's a TUR or PVP, there's nothing wrong as you're learning the surgery um, to kind of taking baby steps towards, towards getting it right. And then record and review your own videos or share it with somebody that um, you trust. I think this is another way that you can gauge how you're progressing.
and then go back and do it again. I mean, you'll learn a little bit more every time, you know, do dabble and then, or try it on your, um, for a couple cases and then go back, visit someone, watch some other experts uh, do the surgery and then keep learning, keep pushing yourself. Um, okay, that's it for the initial part of my talk here. I'm happy to take a couple questions and I do have a video that I was gonna share if uh, you guys are interested because I know that actually seeing a hole can be helpful since it's not something that not everyone has necessarily uh, seen before. But just, I'll take a moment. Does anyone have any questions before we move on? Yeah, so we have a, a, a couple questions here. Um, one's from Alex Smalls. Um, he said, great video and presentation, Dr. Borofsky. Um, the operation always looks great during talks, but in the few cases I've seen, it often ends up being a little bit of a bloodbath. So what are common mistakes people make when they're overcoming the learning curve? So I think probably the, the most common mistake, I think is probably biting off more than you can chew. So this surgery, I, it's very much like peeling an orange. And when you're peeling an orange and you get in that initial plane, you know, that's your best shot to progress. That's gonna be when the surgery is easiest. So as you're kind of working through the surgery, there's this um, instinct to kind of go fast or, or rush it or, or use your scope to open up a plane. And that can create bleeding. And I would say once you're out of plane, that's when things get really challenging. So trying to, to take a little extra time at the beginning of the surgery to set it up right, to make sure you're in the best plane, and then to do as much as you can off of that initial good plane. And, and I think the, the whole surgery is about staying in the plane. So once you can do that, and once you can identify the plane and stay, it, stay in it, it'll not only be drier, but it'll just look better also. Great. Uh, Somebody asked about if there's a particular association between bladder neck contractures and HOLIP. So not to my knowledge, and I think this has been, this is bared out in some of the RCT data as well. Um, bladder neck contractures can occur with either procedure. Um, I think the risk is about 4%, and that's on par with what we see from a TUR. Okay. Um, Dr. Uh, Matt Rutman asked, um, why would you be doing the procedure in prostates under 20 grams? Is it um, recommended or do you find it helps with the learning curve or is it more difficult? Um, just trying to elucidate that. Yeah, I may have caused a little confusion in that slide. I think I misspoke. Those were the resected weights, resected tissue weights, not the prostate size. I probably would not recommend a hole up for a prostate less than 20 grams, but you know, that's one of the things that's nice about using a holmium laser is, is if you do encounter a really tiny prostate, a holmium laser, you don't have to change anything. You can just do a, a TUI piece. So just incise the prostate. And I'll often do that with a marginal prostate um, you'll, where you'll go in at the beginning of the case and you'll use the laser to make a big incision in the bladder neck. And oftentimes in doing that, that will actually declare some of the adenoma and you'll see, oh, I can just cut down and I see this plane developing and then I'll choose to nucleate some of the tissue Whereas other times, if it's just really a fibrotic prostate with no adenoma per se, then you're just done. You do your transurethral incision and you call it a day. Great. Um, somebody asked what laser settings do you generally use and do they ever change? So it's a little bit of a false belief that you have to do a hole up with a high powered laser. Um, it used to be the common thinking that you needed a hundred watt laser at the minimum to do an enucleation. I personally like to do most of my nucleations at two joules and 20 hertz. 
And there's a lot of data, including one RCT from two years ago, showing that outcomes with a low power or high power laser are about the same. Right. Um, somebody asked if there's any situation in which you would recommend a green light or a TERP over a whole lip. So prostate cancer. So somebody who has like advanced prostate cancer and you're doing a channel TERP um, or a channel procedure, I, I think in that case you wanna probably use a TUR or a green light just because there's probably not gonna be any planes. And you really do depend on, you know, some expectation that, that the person's gonna have clean planes in order to, to do the enucleation in the proper way. You can use a laser to enucleate, you know, tissue even in Gleason 10 prostate cancer, but it's challenging. So the ability to just create your own channel is helpful in that regard. Um, this may be more anecdotal, but uh, during the learning curve phase, what is the rate of conversion to TERP, either in your experience or if there's any literature to support? So I was fortunate to, you know, participate in a, in a traditional fellowship program. So when I would get into trouble, I had a mentor who was always able, able to get me out of trouble. Um, I would say, you know, it's all about, you know, setting the expectations for yourself. And I would encourage people who are, who are going to be starting to learn holop or trying to learn holop on their own to almost just plan at the beginning to, to convert for, to convert to a TERP, you know, work for uh, that set period of time, 20 or 30 minutes where um, at, the, at the beginning of the case, which is, you know, usually the, the driest and the easiest part of the procedure, um, you know, set a stopwatch and then convert because I, I think it's, a little bit unrealistic to think that you're gonna just, you know, sit down, having watched a video, get all your whole equipment ready and just do the case start to finish with no prior experience. So I don't think there's anything wrong with converting, you know, in that early learning curve. Um, Dr. Uh, Chung at Columbia asked, um, what recommendations do you have for dealing with transient post-op SUI? So that's something that I think doesn't get spoken about um, a lot, it's something I really didn't include in this talk because there is a lot of, I would say, inconclusive uh, evidence about that, that transient stress urinary incontinence. It's real. A lot of HOLA patients do have a period after surgery where they leak. And I think in counseling them, um, I'm always upfront in saying that, you know, you may have a period of six weeks or so where you have to use um, some Depends or, or some pads. And at first that's very alarming um, because it's not what we usually see with um, our other, with TURs, with PVPs. But I would say that over time and over the years, everybody who I've spoken about, who I've spoken to and has experienced that always used to reassure me, oh, that gets better with time. And it really does. I, I, I've rarely seen a patient with um, any degree of permanent urinary incontinence from a whole up. And that's bared out in the RCT studies. there's a tendency to push harder and when you're peeling out the prostate I think as you push if you push too hard you can um, you can actually tear the sphincter or at least stretch it and create some of that incontinence so being gentle as you're doing the dissection and I really counsel our residents and myself included to really never never force anything as you're working your way through the planes. Mm -hmm. um, similarly related question any other common complications of hole up that you should counsel a patient on when taking a consent? 
I think bladder injury is the other thing that I would probably talk to patients about um, when you're the other part of the surgery that we don't spend a lot of time usually talking about because it's what we consider to be the easier part is the morselation. But as you enucleate all this tissue, you eventually have to push it into the bladder and use a morselator to grind the tissue and remove it. And in doing so, you have this bladed instrument on suction in the bladder, which can definitely, you know, chew a, a nice sized hole through the bladder if not being if you're not careful. And so I, I think the potential for a bladder injury is, is probably something I would counsel patients on, particularly um, at the beginning of offering this. Mm -hmm. um, and then do you find the surgeries that all altered if a patient's previously had um, like a TERP or brachy or mist or anything like that? So brachy is a disaster for almost anything. Uh, I would yeah, I, I might not offer a, a patient a hole up if they've had brachytherapy because those patients just have terrible planes and they're, they're definitely going to be at a higher risk for incontinence. You don't necessarily want to maximally debulk that person. But for someone who's had a TERP before or for someone who's had, um, you know, a, a green light, I definitely would expect there to be um, altered anatomy. And so in those cases, rather than my traditional way of starting, which is at the bladder neck, I would often start at the apex because those planes tend to be a little bit more virgin because people tend to naturally stay away from the apex. Whereas in a hole up, your, your target is your apex. So that's gonna be a consideration that I make is expecting there to be cleaner planes over there than at the bladder neck where more people have probably spent some more time doing the, res the resection. <laughs> and then um, Dr. Rutman again asked, um, at what point did you feel confident uh, doing the procedure on your own? Sort of how many for your own learning curve? So again, you know, because I was in a, in a fellowship training program, it was, I had a lot more experience um, than, it, it was a different experience because I was, I was mentored the whole way. And then even once you're kind of a, at the early part of the learning curve and you're getting yourself out of trouble, um, you then get to train someone else and take a resident through it where you're then kind of encountering all the challenges that somebody else has made for you. So I think it's going to be a different experience depending on if you're learning it yourself or you're in a training program. For me personally, I would say 30 cases would be a best guess as far as when I felt comfortable with it. I mean, you always feel like you're getting better all the time. If I was alone, I, I do think that could be like 30 to 50 cases until you start feeling like really, really comfortable with it. Um, though again, that'll depend to some degree on your experience and you know how common, you know, how your experience is with the TUR also. The other thing I would say is one of the things that people don't often talk about, but I do think starting off um, with whole lips and realizing where the planes of the prostate and the adenoma are, it makes you better in your TURs and your PVPs as well, because you start to really recognize, you know, the extent of the adenoma and how far, um, how far down the adenoma really dives, particularly in some of these men with very, very, very large prostates. Mm -hmm. 30 to 50 cases. Okay. Um, and then any, is there any data to support trying like an apical sparing hole up or anything out there for the risk of retrograde ejaculation or is that not, uh, not explored or non-existent? It's published. Um, I would say, you know, there's, there's more and more evidence to suggest that 
sparing tissue around the viru and the apex can lead to preservation of some ejaculatory function. I, I personally don't feel confident enough um, in telling someone that I'm going to preserve you know, ejaculatory function with a hole that I would really offer that. The one exception is if someone has a very large median lobe um, and it's just an intravesical ball valving lobe. I think you can take out the median lobe only in those cases. And this is it. Uh, Dr. Kaplan actually put a really nice paper together, I think two years ago, suggesting that if you just take out the median lobe, you can preserve ejaculatory function. And I think a laser is a really nice way to do that. So that would be the only time I would ever tell someone that they would likely not experience retrograde ejaculation. Mm -hmm. All right, um, I think that about wraps it up for questions. So I know you had a video, um, if you would like to yeah, share. Let me, so anyone who wants to stay on, I'm happy to share this video. And thank you so much for being here, Dr. Borofsky. Really appreciate the, the talk on uh, an area of interest for a lot of us. I'm happy to share it. Um, all right, tell me, can you guys see this? Is this up, the video? Uh, yep, I think so. All right, tell me if this is playing here. Uh, uh, no, not. Anything going? No, it's just the slides going. Oh, there we go. You got it, okay. So this is a video, this is an abridged video that I presented at the AUA a couple of years ago. And I, I think it's helpful um, just as far as kind of what, what an ideal holdup will look like. So in this case, this is, you know, starting the, the pro, starting the procedure. I think this was like an 80 gram gland. You can see that it's on the larger side. There's a median lobe. There's some catheter necrosis from a long-term catheter. This person was in retention. They always start by looking at the, for the UOs and then in the median lobe, I, used, I usually make a five or a seven o'clock incision. Um, and it's just a nice way to get the procedure going. I use this orange analogy here because that's where I am in the process. I'm at five o'clock coming back to the viru. I'll distend the bladder so I can open up or push the UO away. And then I, at, at two joules and 40 hertz in this case, I'm going to make that initial cut. And you can see the laser is both hemostatic and it's also excellent at cutting through tissue. Usually you want to cut down to the capsule here. And so you kind of look for that white fluffy tissue um, and you're going to keep cutting until the kind of the marshmallowy type fluffy tissue um, is transected. So you kind of carry that dissection all the way back to the viru. And once you get here, this is where you're going to start developing your apex. So in this case, because the patient had a median lobe, I'll be coming across liberating the median lobe first. You can just take the median lobe at this, at this point, but I like to just um, dissect out the, the whole uh, apex. And I do this as a two lobe technique. So here's the plane. You can, you can really see that the plane opens up. And then I'm going to move my scope towards the left side and start working on the left lobe. So I'll make this apical incision. And again, I'm really trying hard not to push anything. I really, really, really have to emphasize that if you're at the apex, you don't wanna push aggressively on the prostate, just a very gentle, gentle, gentle push there. Um, and usually if you're in the right plane, the prostate just opens up. You often see stones over here, and this is in the uh, layer between the transition zone and the peripheral zone. And it can be very reassuring when you see those stones that you're in the proper plane. And 
as you're doing this, you can see that I'm really not using any blunt dissection. In fact, the laser oftentimes is not even making any contact with the tissue. It's just naturally separating it, separating it with some of that acoustic um, uh, pulse from the laser itself. So as you're coming around the prostate, this is where you really have to th think in 3D because you can see you have to pull back some of the, there's a natural inclination to push into the bladder, but if you do, if you go in too fast, you're gonna miss some of this adenoma anteriorly. You can see this big lobe of tissue here. So um, you have to pull back as you're turning the corner. all the way up over the top of the prostate. So now I've kind of gotten over the top. And once you get over the top of the prostate, you can, you know, essentially point your scope towards the head and that's going to be where your bladder neck is. So, so literally I'm going to have my scope facing the, or just pointing right to the patient's um, nose. And that's going to help me orient where my bladder neck is. You can often see these vertical fibers too, which I'm going to show you in a moment. So, you know, entering into the bladder neck can be really a, a little frightening because you, if you're in the wrong plane, you're going to leave the prostate capsule. So as I'm going over the top here, what I'm going to keep looking for are these, these vertical fibers. Where are the fibers going up and down? And so you can see here, see how the fibers are oriented up and down there? That's generally the landmark that I'm looking for to prove to myself that I'm about to enter the bladder neck. And so once I get over there, I, I'm, I'm confident because the fibers are going up and down that that's gonna be the bladder neck and it is. So I'll then enter the bladder. I'll kind of wiggle the scope from side to side and I will identify these kind of these bladder neck attachments here. So these anterior attachments, as you take them down, you know, you're really gonna, gonna start seeing the, um, the orientation of the prostate and the adenoma very well. So at this point, I'll come over to the other side a little bit like I am there and I'm, I'm still gonna be working, that, working the prostate and then I have to split the commissure. So I'll go back you know, into the apex and I'll look, I'll point straight up and I'll gently split the anterior commissure. This is very similar to what you do in, a, in an open, simple prostatectomy. And I've seen some people when they're doing this really use a lot of laser energy or use a lot of torque to split this commissure, but you wanna be very, very gentle here. So I, I just make this um, incision. And you can see as you're making this incision here, um, you see two planes. So in the posterior, you know, back here, this is the true capsule. And this is the fluffy adenoma. So I'm just going to gently, gently, gently split this anterior commissure with the laser. And as I'm pulling back towards the sphincter, I'm just gently doing it layer by layer until I attenuate those anterior um, commissure fibers enough that they just naturally split. And sometimes you do have to use a little bit of kind of gentle back and forth pressure to really get this anterior commissure to split. But I would counsel you don't use a lot of force here. This is, this is a step I think that can lead to that transient incontinence. You just wanna, you wanna like slowly, slowly, slowly split it. 
So now once I've made that anterior commissurotomy, I'm gonna move my scope up to the top and I'm actually in circle. So I'm going to put my scope to the top and I'm gonna, I'm gonna capture all of the tissue that's left connected to the apex on that left side. And in doing so, I'm actually going to be bunching up um, this little mucosal strip. So, so there's, there is some apical tissue that I have not yet dissected free from the apex that I'm bunching up here. And I'm gonna show myself what, where that is because as I pull back, you can see this little strip of tissue. This is the last connection of the left lobe to the apex, which I'm just gonna cut there. And so now that I've cut this mucosal strip, I have that left lobe now totally freed up. And I just have to take down the remaining lateral attachments and the posterior attachments. And as I'm doing this, I'm really careful to, to kind of gently push this away from the sphincter so that I don't create, you know, any sort of uh, thermal injury to the sphincter itself. So now that that's all been transected, that left lobe is free. And now I really, now I'm, I'm fine to push on it. And this is a spot where I'll often get a resident involved because since that left lobe is now totally free from the sphincter, you can push on it with impunity and you won't cause any sort of um, um, incontinence or anything because you're totally separated from the sphincter. And it's a really good spot to learn kind of the movements of the scope and how to, how to both apply a little bit of traction with the scope like I'm doing here and laser at the same time. So you're kind of always using the scope to push the tissue away and identify the cleavage plane and then you're using your laser to transect it. And so, you know, if you were doing this and you were a right-handed surgeon, I often say your scope is, the, is your left hand and it's moving the tissue away and your laser is your right hand and it's doing the, the cutting. So once it's all freed up, I'm gonna use the beak of my scope to just gently push that left lobe up into the bladder. And as I just, I'm just kind of gently, gently, gently pushing it. And if it's totally, um, dissected free, it just pops up into the bladder like that. So you can see here, I've got the majority of it, you know, dissected and I'm just gently, gently, gently gonna push up and then laser any um, connections that become apparent as I'm moving the left lobe up into the bladder. And then once I've got that lobe free enough, it's gonna pop right into the bladder. The last thing, there's often this connection at the bladder neck. So this is the very last thing I have to do is to separate that left lobe off the bladder neck. And so you'll see at this point now, my entire left lobe is free. And then now I just have the right lobe to worry about. So I'll start at the top, I'll encircle the other side. And again, encircling is, is you know, moving my, my scope around the lateral sides of the tissue. And I'm doing this to bunch up any apical attachment that's left over. And that's that mucosal strip. So that mucosal strip is the last thing I will see here. There's the strip again. So that strip of tissue, again, just like on the other side, this is just the, the counter um, of the other side. I'm gonna transect that strip. And then once I've got it totally free, I'm gonna transect it away from the viru. And I'm gonna just focus on doing the remaining lateral and posterior attachments, just like I did on the other side. And you can really see that the capsular planes are very distinct from the adenoma when you're in the right plane. And that's what I would encourage, trying to spend as much time as possible really on that capsule. 
So now you should have all, both your lobes in the bladder, or at least you will in a moment here. And then the next thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna set up a morselator. So you'll see that in a moment. So a morselator is this bladed handpiece um, that you actually have to switch to a nephroscope in order to use. And you have to run two inflows in through your scope because while you're morselating, you wanna keep the scope, um, you wanna keep the bladder very distended so that you don't inadvertently um, morselate the bladder wall. So here I'm just freeing up the, the last bit of tissue connected to the bladder neck here. In any moment, I'm just gonna have two lobes floating in the bladder. So you've got that free open fossa now, the two lobes in the bladder. I usually do spend a little bit of time getting hemostasis before I morselate because you want as little bleeding as possible. But once you morselate, this is the, the bladed instrument it's got some suction on it, so as you're chewing through the tissue, it just comes out into this little tissue trap. Um, and that actually provides you a great specimen also for your pathologist. So you can see you're, this is kind of the boring part, so uh, I kind of sped through this. Um, in this case, we've morselated the tissue, and then I'll, I'll go back in one final time and I'll make sure that there's no more bleeding. And this is this is really a part I would encourage you to spend a long time on at the end of the cases is your best opportunity to make sure the patient's not gonna bleed in the recovery room. Uh, I'll go to two joules and 20 Hertz and, and essentially just look for all the blood vessels. And, and what's nice, oftentimes, if you're in the right plane, you're catching these vessels as they're running parallel through the tissue as opposed to on end. So I do think that's one of the reasons that you often see less bleeding in a holop than you do in some other procedures because you're not actually transecting um, the vessels as often as you're, you're encountering them running just right in this, this plane here. So this is kind of what it should look like at the end. Morselation and hemostasis, um, in this case, about 15 minutes. And uh, then you put a catheter in and, and you're done. So I don't know if there are any other questions or anything. I know we have a couple minutes, but um, this was 64 grams of specimen, you know, clear urine on CBI at the end of the case. And obviously I'm showing you a, a, a better procedure for teaching purposes. They don't all, all look as pretty as that one, but, um, but yeah, I don't know if there's any other questions. Uh, we had one more question about if you do perforate the prostatic capsule, um, how would you proceed? So as long as it's not a, a tremendously large perforation, you know, I, I wouldn't be all that nervous. Um, one of the nice things about doing a hole up is you're using saline. So the likelihood of getting TUR syndrome is not, you know, not very high at all. Um, and then the other nice thing about um, the procedure is since you're opening up the tissue so, or you're opening up the, um, uh, the channel so much, oftentimes these patients void under very low pressure. So if the capsular perforation is not that large, it often doesn't change the management a whole lot at all. You know, as long as there's no bleeding and, it, and it's focal, I would just keep going.